0: Beginning, the beginning, the beginning, the beginning. Welcome to the Grief Dreams Podcast. My name is
1: Sean Ram alongside Joshua Black. Joshua, how are you today? I'm doing pretty good, Sean. I'm actually really excited. This is a, a new guest for us in the sense of, especially her childhood. I'm really interested in who her father was and also her journey. So uh, I hope the, the listeners um, learn a thing or two about uh, nature.
0: Today we have on Rachel Gebler-Greenberg, and she is a park ranger's daughter. She grew up in many of our national parks throughout the United States. In the late 1980s, she moved to Los Angeles with her then young son, where she worked in entertainment, technology, and philanthropic organizations. In 1999, she met and married the love of her life, Glenn, and then in 2013, he passed away suddenly and unexpectedly from a brain hemorrhage. After the sudden passing of her husband, Rachel was thrown into this thing called grief. She spent the last four years studying what happens to us when we die and has started a foundation. Connections of Hope is where she helps others with their grief and finding hope after loss. Rachel is currently writing a memoir, Finding Glenn. She is a writer, a storyteller, an ambassador with One Legacy, the Southern California chapter for organ donation where she speaks frequently about death, grief, and finding hope after loss. Rachel, welcome.
2: Thank you. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Hello, Josh. Hello, Sean.
0: Great to have you. Um, And, you know, just reading over just thus far what you've accomplished in life. It's pretty incredible. Uh, You've really dedicated yourself to to kind of helping people um, and finding, uh, you know, these ways in which, you know, your story can be shared uh, but let's let's start off with your early childhood, you know, your Park Ranger's daughter. That That must be pretty amazing to kind of have those experiences.
2: Yes, absolutely. Well, I was born in Washington, D.C., and within a few short months, we moved to the Grand Canyon. And we lived in national parks for most of my childhood. And then even when my father moved up in his career and was stationed in cities such as San Francisco and Seattle, which are not bad places to be, by the way. We would, even, we would then go spend months at a time living in a national park, places like Yosemite. I remember as a young child, my father, um, not only was he the chief naturalist for the National Park Service, he was also an avid photographer. And there were many times when my parents had Ansel Adams and his wife over for dinner. And my father and Ansel Adams would actually go on photography expeditions together, so many of Ansel Adams' famous photographs. My father has similar ones where he was standing right next to Ansel Adams, taking the same, shooting the same
0: shot. Wow. So, could you could you, um, could you share with people who Ansel Adams is?: Because I don't think Ansel
2: Adams is a famous photographer who is no longer with us. He made his fame to claim with a, a lot of the black and white photos of the national parks, in particular, Yosemite. Um, all you have to do is Google Ansel Adams and a plethora of information will come up. His, his photographs are in museums throughout the world, the, the, the Met I mean the, the New York Museum of Art, the Louvre, um, the National Museum in, in Washington, D.C. is quite famous. Quite famous, one of the most famous photographers, actually, in our time, of our time, in the tw- of the 20th century, I would say. And my father and Ansel Adams were friends. We, we uh, lived in, like I said, Mount Rainier, the Grand Canyon, and I had quite a, an unusual childhood because of that, and I thought that everyone lived that way, but clearly now I know that was not the case. Um, we would always go on nature hikes on the weekends, or I would go to visit my father, and I would follow him. He would be leading nature hikes. Wild animals were all around us. We lived in park housing, or believe it or not, we didn't even have to lock our doors. So it was, it was quite an amazing experience. Uh, we also spent a lot of time in the southwest and um made it many Native American reservations. Of course at the time I didn't know it, but we actually were lucky enough to spend quite a bit of time on the Hopi reservations where I understand that now it's very, very difficult to do where they just don't want outsiders. There was I was looking at a picture actually the other day I posted on Facebook for Mother's Day and it was a picture of our family and we were ca- camping in, in in the Southwest and my mom Told me that actually we were on a um, we were in Native American reservation, and that a, a couple came by that evening on their horse and spent the evening with my family and I and invited us to some Hopi dances the um, the next day.
1: Wow, sounds like an amazing childhood. Like I never it had, was. I never had anything like that. So, do you have an appreciation for nature more than most people that you meet?
2: Well, you know it's funny, I do now. However, growing up, I just thought it was something that everyone experienced. And then when I got a little older, um, all I wanted to do was just around people and be in cities. So it's always like they say, you know, you always want what you can't have. But now, of course, I really appreciate it. And I just feel so lucky to have grown up in that type of environment where I not only think that I'm more spiritually healthy but physically because we lived so far away from everything we you know grew a lot of our own vegetables and we had to travel quite a distance to go to the store so um you know i grew up in the 1960s and 70s and so during the 70s when everyone was drinking tang and eating ding-dongs and ho-hos our treat was raisins and homemade bread so, <laughs> That's true. Yeah, so. they're very, very different. They're very, very very different, but I absolutely have an appreciation for it now.
1: What's one thing you miss the most right now? Cuz I'm guessing you're not a park ranger, so you're not spending as much time in the woods as you once did. No. So what do you miss most?
2: Well, I think I I think I just miss, you know, the wonderment of nature because I live in Southern California now in Los Angeles, which is a big metropolitan city, and I seek out you know, and experiences that take me closer to nature. I'm going on vacation next week and taking going with my best friend to a, a tiny little village on the very tip of Virginia where there's only a few hundred people that live there and it's actually even hard to get to. So I try to look for more of those sorts of experiences. I mean, growing up, I just thought it was normal to have you know, nature all around you. I can remember being three or four years old and um going to visit my dad at his office and on the way back, this was when we lived at Mount Rainier, just kind of stopping and laying in a field of wildflowers and closing my eyes and picturing myself as like a raindrop that would drop down and it would when it would hit the flower it would bounce off and it would turn into a bird and fly away. And then I would go home and and get angry with my mother because I couldn't be that raindrop or that bird. So I don't know where that came from, except perhaps just being being so far away from civilization since you were born and not being around many people. We didn't have a television. Our entertainment was each other. So I don't know if that answers your question or not, but...
0: Oh, yeah, for sure, was, um, for sure. and Yeah, you know, it was very
2: unusual and, and wonderful, and that's why I say it was magical. Those sorts of experiences were just second nature to me and my family.
0: I think we're getting back to it, but not that it went away and not that people didn't visit parks and go camping and those type of things, but maybe at least we're hearing about it a lot more now, where it's becoming more into the mainstream media of how important it is, you know, it is... I think it's important for people to kind of take a break from if you, especially if you live in a city to kind of take a break from that and go venture out, go for a hike. Um, and especially, I think people taking advantage of national parks because in Canada, we have a lot of amazing national parks in the United States is the same, you know, um, right. you know, in, the, in the States, you guys have, you know, got a good history of kind of, uh, setting aside land, um, for national parks. And, and it's great that people are taking advantage of it. And, how far are you in California away from something that's kind of like that? You're probably like an hour, hour and a half away from something like that.
2: Well, you know, I thought that the, I thought that I was. And it wasn't until my husband passed away that I started seeking out nature again. And believe it or not, I found this little patch of land in the middle of the city. It's called Playa Vista. Uh, there's a lot of history to Playa Vista. It's, where Howard Hughes had, um, he owned all the land, the billionaire Howard Hughes, and that's where he had the big hangar and and built the Spruce Goose, that big airplane. Actually, the hangar is still there. And before that, the Tongva Indians lived there for thousands of years. So it's a strip of land that's never been developed. Recently, they have developed it, but the hillside remains the same, and no one is ever been there or lived there. And so there's some fire roads up there. And I go hiking up there with my dog. And believe it or not, every single time I go, I see we see hawks, definitely see giant egrets. You'll see coyotes. Sometimes uh, we were talking about coyotes before you started the recording.
0: Any cougars? Any cougars?
2: Um, Well, not in that area, but we do have um, cougars in Los Angeles. In Griffith Park, there's a cougar. They've actually named him P-22 for Puma number 22. Um, Yeah, we've got a big old mountain lion there. And then um, in Santa Monica, which is one of our communities just up the coast here, there were actually a couple cougars that, that ventured down into a shopping center a few years ago. So yeah, you wouldn't think it in the in the big city, but we we've got mountain lions here.
0: I've 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 heard some podcasts um, about that, and I know they're tracked and they're monitored and. Uh, relatively safe. I mean, you know, maybe if yeah. it's really, really hungry or something, it might grab a small dog or something. But uh, people, right. obviously, people are also cautious who go hiking and bike uh, bicycling and stuff like that. Um, and you, you just yeah. can't avoid it. You know, like our cities are set up that way. We're on the fringe of nature. And even in Canada, even where we are now in Toronto, there's a lot of news about koi wolves. So, you know, half coyotes, half wolves. And they're starting to kind of oh. ma- make their way down from Algonquin Provincial Park into the major metropolitan areas and that's the balance we have to live as humans you know we have to respect the animals animals respect where we live and and you know they're i think they're smarter than us i don't know
2: (laughs) i agree i think so too i think so too
1: so you mentioned you mentioned a little bit about glenn already and and that was that was her loss can you take us back to sort of where you met glenn was it in the woods um or was it at work or where did you meet this guy
2: that you'll love this story. Well, we saw each other, and he tried to meet me for three years. So it goes back. I'll take you back to 1996. My then son was in high school. I I was a young mother. I had my son when I was 18 years old. Raised him on my own. And when he was in high school, he got a job at a, a little coffee shop around the corner from our house. And so naturally, I, w- I would go there and, and visit him and get coffee before work and stopping on the weekends. Well, I would always see this man there with salt and pepper hair, with a young son in tow. He was always chatting my son up. And my son would say, um, Mom, this guy wants to meet you. This guy wants to meet you. And Glenn would be kind of standing over in the corner and kind of look at me and give me a little half wave. And for whatever reason, I, we didn't meet. And this went on for about three years. My son then graduated from high school, moved to the East Coast, and I had taken a trip with my best friend to Europe. And um, when we were on the train one day, she looked at me and she said, you know, Rachel, it's really time for you to get married. You've raised your son. You've been a responsible mom. It's now time for you. She said, make a list of men. Well, I looked at her and I thought, make a list. There's no one to put on the list. So she she just, she just kept pushing. So I thought of this guy back home who had been staring at me at the coffee warehouse for three years with the salt and pepper hair. And he always had a surfboard in the back of his truck. So I told my friend Bonnie about him. And she said, oh, well, let's call him Gray Surfer. Write him down on the list.
1: <laughs> so I wrote
2: him down. And a few days went by and I went back home and I went to the same coffee shop. And there he was again, the Gray Surfer. But this time, he was by himself, and for whatever reason, he decided to talk to me that day. And he looked right at me, and he said, hi, my name is Glenn. Let's go do something. I've been waiting to meet you for three years. I even left a Post-it note with the cashier today because I wanted to meet you. Well, that's how we began, and we saw or spoke to each other every day after that for the rest of his life. And, you know, I, I never met anyone like Glenn before. He he loved me from the start. He never got tired of the chase. He would draw hearts on my bathroom mirror with my nail polish. He was just the, the sweetest, kindest person you could ever meet. The cup was always half full for Glenn. And also the hardest worker, and this is very relevant because it does tie into a profound dream that I did have about Glenn. Um, to tell you a little more, Glenn worked in film production. Before I met him, he was an artist, a scenic painter. And um, when I met all the work, he pretty much dried up and gone to Canada. And since, no pun intended in Canada, you guys, but since then, I think a lot of it has gone to like Eastern Europe and things for production, you know, to keep production costs down. So, Glenn decided to reinvent himself and started a painting company and started out just painting little bathrooms and never saw anyone work so hard. He would take on any any job. He would paint a door, a school teacher's bathroom. He would do it for $25, $50, and his incline, his clients started to grow and his business started to grow, but he would always take on more and more and more, working six, seven days a week, just wanting to provide for his family. He was just that guy that just never ever stopped. He just kept going, kept going, so responsible. If he said he was going to call it six, he'd call it five fifty. If he said he was going to show up at, at seven, he'd show up at six fifty five. He was just that guy. And um, so that's that's how we began and that was that was Glenn.
1: Wow, he sounds like an amazing guy. And very patient, I yeah, must say. He really Some people was. wouldn't be he, as patient. Or maybe he just you know and you know, at the end of the day, too, like maybe he just knew what he wanted, and I think you know some people say they have those moments in life where they just lock eyes with someone, and there's something different about this person uh, that they can't really understand, and so there's a pull inside, and I think it's funny once you realize that you wanted to talk to him, that's when he actually decided to talk to you, and I thought that was that was kind of interesting in your story on how how those how it was all linked together in a way. So how was Glenn with your son?
2: Glenn was great with my son. Well, by, the, when, by the time we got together, my son was 19 years old and was living on the East Coast. And and then it became reversed and that I became a stepmother, and he had the young son. But Glenn before that was excellent with my son. I mean, he even went to some of his baseball games before I even met Glenn. So he was trying to get to know me through my son at the time and stayed connected with my son. My my son had three children. Glenn called himself Gramps, even though they were his step-grandchildren. To him, they were his blood grandchildren. He just, he loved family. He loved love. He loved people. And it's interesting you say that, that um, when I was ready, because I was just, thinking about that very thought the other day.
0: He seems like someone who's in tune with his values and in tune with his direction in life. And, and, you know, I hate to call them simple things. That's actually I don't think they're simple, I think. But that's essentially, I have no other word for it. The simple key things in life, you know, family, friendships, um, being passionate about work. That seems like uh, Glenn. And he's a smart guy. He's a smart guy. He goes right through... Gr- goes through your son. <laughs> He's a smart man. <laughs> Makes friends with your son. And, you know, that's an intelligent person. So, you know, I I, I yeah. like him already.
1: I think he, you know, you didn't just he... do it to, uh, to get your attention. I thought he probably just also loved children and he loved helping people he and inspiring others. Yeah. So it'd be well, nice. You'll
2: if... love this... <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to talk over you, but you'll love this too. And that I, for whatever reason, I played hard to get. And the harder I played to get, the more Glenn chased me, so the first few months I took my best friend Janice with me on our date. Who does
0: that? <laughs> Glenn, Glenn, what a Glenn is turning into a saint. Glenn is turning into a truly a silver surfer. Don't <laughs> even
1: forget Gray; he's a <laughs> silver surfer.
2: I like the silver surfer. I love that. I love that.
1: That's pretty funny. So, yeah, you were playing hard to get. Do you ever figure out why you're doing that?
2: You know, I don't know, except that he was actually the first man ever who chased me. I always did the chasing before. And for whatever reason, that never worked out for me. Well, now I know why, because men love the chase. Mm. I've found that to be true. They love the chase.
1: Well, and I I guess women too, right? Well, well, I you guess
2: did. so, but, I, I, but you know what? It didn't work when I was chasing the guys. All it did was chase them away.
0: <laughs> Perhaps there's so, some anthropological hunter-gatherer metaphor here where, you know, men are, are were traditionally used to hunting. No, I don't want to get into that, but like... <laughs> You know, I, I kind of get, I, I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. Like certain people are, not everybody, but certain people are into being chased and certain people are into being uh, the ones, you know, who are hunting, if you will, lack of a better word.
2: Well, it's funny you say that because I've thought of that, that with the hunter gatherers and things. And I've actually given advice to, to, to women friends of mine who are, are looking for love that will be chasing these these men who really aren't interested, and so I've tried to give them advice. Well, you know, maybe choose someone that chooses you. Then you're already on a, a good playing field to start with.
1: Yeah, and, that, and
2: uh, So that's yeah. what I did with Glenn. I guess I gave it a chance. I mean, yeah. everyone had been telling me that for years, and so oh. I finally listened, and there was something about him, though. It was just that spark that kept, that piqued my interest, and... I just kept saying yes.
0: Yeah, yeah, and, and I think it goes a little bit beyond um, the hunter mentality because, again, like the time, the patience. Um, this wasn't just some prize Glenn wanted to catch. You know, this was something that he was developing, and and he could see potential in the relationship because to put to 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 spend two or three years to to take the time out to to spend time with your son. That's not just hunting and getting something that's like that's that's more so which is you know that's more
2: well he asked me to marry him on our first date and <laughs> overwhelmed me it overwhelmed me a little bit
0: so
1: he's 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 taking into account the three years <laughs> yeah, I, <think> yeah. So. <laughs> I can see now why you brought your friend along
2: yeah. i know well he would describe like what i would what i would wear for three years i thought at first I thought, okay, he's a stalker. But I soon realized that was not the case and he no. was the real deal. I
1: was gonna say, it's like those people say they fall in love at the first sight and it seems like that's maybe what happened to him. And, and it's just like, it's hard to understand love, right? In someone else's eyes because you don't know what they're feeling. They do some action sometimes that seem kind of peculiar or weird. But it could just be out of this sort of feeling inside that they've never felt before. And this is what they feel that they need to do uh, to with those feelings. So I think that's really cool um, how you shared so much about uh, Glenn and his life. Can you talk a little bit about his loss and his death and, and what that was like for you after finding okay. someone that valued you so much?
2: Well, absolutely. Well, after we, we got married, and, and after two years, although we were together from the minute we met, like I mentioned, I, the day we met, I saw or spoke to him every day for the rest of his life. We were married for 11 and a half years, not long enough. On a Saturday morning in 2013, I left my house to do errands, like I'd done so many Saturdays before that. And while I was away, Glenn suffered a massive brain hemorrhage we never spoke again. He was rushed to UCLA, Ronald Reagan Medical Center in Los Angeles, where I was immediately told there's no hope. He's got a brain bleed. The head physician told me, as bad as they come, he said that they would try and operate, but Glenn was already in a coma. They were already asking me if he had a medical directive. They actually even asked if they should even proceed with the surgery. I was in complete shock, and I wanted them to do anything and everything they could to save his life. So they did operate, and Glenn survived the surgery. He was stable. There was no swelling, no seizures. They got rid of all the blood, but also no consciousness. After four days in the ICU, we received more bad news. Um, He had been strong enough at that point to undergo an MRI. And um, he had, that's where we found out that there was 80 to 90% brain damage in his brain stem. And the brain stem controls your primal bodily functions like breathing. So there was no coming back from this. I called his family in New York and gave them the terrible news. That we would keep him off, keep him on life support long enough until they could come out and say goodbye, and then we would let him go. The um, only silver lining was that I found out that Glenn was an organ donor. He had signed up just a, a few short months before, and he's since gone on to help 127 people, ages four to 94. And I've become an ambassador with One Legacy, which is the Southern California Organ Procurement Foundation, where I speak about grief and be an organ donor and a hero. So that's that's what happened. And it threw me into this this whole thing called grief, which I knew nothing about. I mean, my, I'd lost my father. He died young when I was in my early 20s. But that really didn't impact me in the way that it did losing my spouse, even though my father and I were very close. When you lose a spouse, your day-to-day life changes in an instant. Whereas if you lose a parent or a friend, and I don't mean to take away from that sort of grief because grief is grief, but losing a spouse, your day-to-day life is completely changed. That person is no longer in your home. You no longer share a bed with them. You no longer share anything with them. They're just gone. It's like walking out the front door, being forced to leave without saying goodbye for no reason at all. So I then have spent the last four years doing research on what happens to us when we die does our consciousness survive bodily death? And it's, that's what led me to, to start this foundation and want to help others that have gone through the same thing.
1: And so how does that, that research and that question, like, what was that about, uh, and did, did you ever find an answer to that?
2: Well, what it was about is that when Glenn was alive, I was an atheist. I was one of those hardcore, obnoxious, atheist that I thought I knew it all I had all the answers so I thought even two nights before Glenn's brainley we were having one of our many late night conversations and I um think we had seen something on the news where someone had lost a loved one and they were talking about how they're comforted by the fact that the person's in heaven and I remember just being really out of line and just saying very opinionated that the pers- that they were delusional and that when, when you're dead, you're dead and the light goes out. But, you know, it's funny. Glenn grabbed my hand when I said that and he said, you're going to be okay. And that really startled me because I didn't know what he meant by that. And, of course, he had no idea that he was going to have a brain aneurysm two days later. So, and that losing him, of course, was... You know, started me on my quest. And I started by reading grief books, which didn't really help. I found that most of them are written for depression, and depression and grief are very different things. So I started researching life after death. And the first place I went to was the father of all atheism, Richard Dawkins. I watched his TED talk, and I was expecting, I was waiting for proof. I was waiting for white papers, peer reviews, and All he did was make fun of dogmatic religion, so his hypothesis was, therefore, there's no life after death. Well, that left me flat. Uh, I, I didn't feel that was evidential. So I started doing more research and found that science actually does not know where consciousness comes from. And they say mind equals brain, and that we live in a meaningless universe and you're a biological robot. Well that also left me flat because where does love come from that we were just talking about earlier? You know, if we live in a meaningless universe, where is what is love? So those are the little things that started me on my track out of atheism. And then the the first dream that I had about Glenn really was so meaningful as if he had given me a message. But I, I I couldn't doubt it. And then I started reading accounts of near-death experiences. And these near-death experiences, their stories are similar the world over. Whether you're an atheist or a Buddhist or a Southern Baptist, their stories have a very common thread. So it was things like that that have, pushed me out of atheism and I'm still doing research, but I, I am a skeptic. Um, I can't tell you that I, I believe everything I read, I don't. I have to experience it myself. However, I, I'm at the point now where I'm convinced that consciousness does survive bodily death. What that means exactly, I don't know. But I do think that we we do live on. And this life as we know it is, is not everything.
0: That's, you know, that's that's a very interesting thing you just said. And, and I think um, coming from being an atheist is another very interesting thing because, you know, uh, a lot of people aren't coming from that. So a lot of people are coming from some sort of background or upbringing that involves church or religion or God. And then they kind of go through their grief and kind of incorporate that into what healing is for them. But you're coming from a different angle. So you actually had to question and, and figure out, you had to gain information and research. And yeah, that's interesting. I've heard of Richard Dawkins and, and whatnot, but that's actually a lot of it is kind of what we're trying to do. So with this podcast, we're trying to bridge the gap as well. Whereas dreams and, and a lot of these things were kind of looked upon as kind of and this is just my opinion, but like pseudosciences and whatnot, right. and so the scientific community maybe neglected that because, and kind of like atheists. And my take on it is sometimes atheists kind of look at religion like that. We're like, well, religions call, caused all this bad, so we have, so we don't take into account the good that it does. Um right. But. You know, if you analyze things a little clearly, and that's what we're trying to do here is apply a scientific perspective onto something that's been neglected, bring it into the mainstream more. And we can have conversations about grief and dreams. We can talk about dreams without trying to sit here and label or interpret and, and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, Josh, you feel the same way hopefully
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah yes, <Sean. laughs> uh, yeah we're still friends uh so <laughs> yeah, it's the same thing I, exactly what sean was saying is that you know in in, in your life I say you're you looked at things with a more of a, a non-bias you're trying to find answers you weren't trying to you know i guess go to one side and prove your side being right and that's the same thing here with dreams is we're not trying to prove if you know, there's an afterlife or not, or if these are visitations or not, we're just allowing people to talk about it and people can make their own mind. And that's what you allowed yourself to do. After Glenn passed away, you allowed yourself to actually open your mind to say, okay, what do I truly believe given the information? And I think that's beautiful how you went on that search and that journey. And you came up with something that was beneficial for you on your grief journey. So is that, so. I have, it,
2: yeah. I, I have, and it's, um, yeah it's and it's giving me comfort it's It's part of my foundation now i mean i I found there's two things that that for me that I found that help the most with grief. one is time, and the second is having an ongoing relationship with your loved one who has passed now that's going to mean different things for different people um and dreams are a big part of that. When I had the first dream of Glenn it lifted me up for a good two weeks afterwards. So, like I said, having that ongoing relationship, whether it's a dream, whether it's honoring them, whether it's having a connection with them, even going to a medium, having a sighting of them, or just giving yourself permission to, to say their name. Because grievers, they find that they become invisible. They're ghosts. Our society is so uncomfortable with death and grief that, you know, you can talk freely about Martin Luther King or President Kennedy, but if you talk about your dead spouse, you're going to get bouts of silence and you'll notice that people will be visibly uncomfortable. When I went back to work after Glenn died, I remember one executive walked past me and looked at me as if I was the grim reaper coming to get him. I think it was just because I'd lost my husband. And so many other grievers out there tell me the same thing. It's the same story over and over. So if they can give, them, give themselves permission to talk about their loved one, to have a connection with their loved one, it helps ease the pain of, of, and suffering of grief.
1: Yeah, I believe really, it normalizes it when you talk to others and it helps you let so much off your chest that you're holding in. And I think that's the big problem, is that people hold in their memories or stories and they care so much what other people think because a lot of times, as you're right, people don't care. But you gotta find those people that do care. And that's why a lot of people go to support right. groups and stuff like that because someone else who has a similar loss tends to understand where you're coming from, your emotions and things that you're processing. So. I know you talked about this dream twice, but you still haven't told about it. So, can you talk about the dream okay, that you had?
2: I will. I will. Well, just to give you a little bit of the background, I've given you some of the background about the type of person that Glenn was. So, he was, like I said, he was a hard worker, super responsible. He, um, his truck broke down two weeks before he passed away, and it was very bad. The transmission blew. So, being the responsible Glenn that he was he took on extra work and he had gotten a job at the Getty, the famous Getty museum as their head painter about seven months before he died. He was so happy there. loved, loved, loved it. And even though he had a full-time job, he still took on a second job because that's just who he was. So for those last two weeks of his life, he was working from 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. seven days a week. And he was driving from this one location in Los Angeles on Mulholland Drive. You've probably seen it many times on car commercials. It's a famous road that's very curved, and below it you see the city of Los Angeles. And if you see it again, you'll go, oh, yeah, 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 that's what Rachel was talking about. Well, anyway, he was working up there at a, a famous family's mansion as painting their house. And then he would go there from like 7 a.m. to 1 p.m. And then he would drive the other direction of Mulholland Drive to the Getty Museum where he worked as a painter. So this went on for two weeks. He was pushing himself to the point I was very worried. Even though he was healthy, it was really pushing, pushing, pushing. But that's just what he did. He, He wanted to provide for his family. That was Glenn. So let's go to the dream. Well, actually, back up quickly. Glenn drove a Toyota Tundra, a white Toyota Tundra. That truck was Glenn. It was like an extension of him. He loved it. He drove everywhere. I think the time we were together, I would only put like one or 2,000 miles a year in my car because Glenn just drove. It was who he was. So in the dream, Glenn and I were in that truck, and we were on that very road, Mulholland Drive. And it was so real, you guys, as, I mean, it was realer, it was more real than I feel right now. I mean, it had feelings. So I'm in the passenger seat, Glenn's driving, and we're on this road of Mulholland Drive, and we're talking away just as everything's normal. It's a bright, sunny day. And I turn around and I look, and he's pulling a horse, this beautiful horse um, that's tied to a rope. And this horse is, you know, catching up with the truck. And I say, Glenn, this is not safe. You should not be pulling a horse. And Glenn goes, oh, it's okay. It's okay. It's all right. That horse will keep up. Don't worry about it. And we just keep on talking. And I'm like, Glenn, no, this is not safe. I turn around. That horse is doing everything in its power to keep up. And at this point, Glenn's going about 60 miles an hour on this road. I'm very nervous. I'm like, stop. You can't do this. You cannot be pulling a horse. So then we pull up to this plateau. Like I said, we're on that road. I see Los Angeles down below. We're on this twisty road. He stops at this plateau, and he looks at me, and he says, you can't come with us. And I get out of the truck, and Glenn and the horse drive away, and I wake up. I'm in a cold sweat, and I'm startled. So I get out of bed. And I immediately go grab this book that I have. It's called The Book of Symbols. And it's actually a, it's academia level. I bought it at the Getty Research Society. And I open it up to horse. And this is what I read. They'll run forever. They'll gallop till they die, they will. If if we don't say stop, they live for us, just for us. Their whole lives. That is a horse. Well, that was Glenn, <laughs> and that was the last two weeks of his life. Mm. So I'm convinced he was telling. That's why he had the brain bleed. He was just overworking, overdoing it, overdoing it because that was him. He did not know how to stop.
1: Wow, that's so interesting. I yeah, like how it, you...
2: it's so. It's so real that I still can see the images as, as if the dream just happened.
1: That's amazing. That is so amazing you had that experience. And you can still remember yeah. in such vivid detail.
2: Oh, I'll That's never forget it. I'll never wow.
1: forget it. Wow. And I like how you got answers a little bit too, because you're probably wondering why with the the brain. I did, yeah. yeah. so it gave you a little bit of some answers and also maybe to treat yourself a little um a little better in the sense of yep. the actions that we do if we're too stressed, if we push ourselves and we don't um give time for rest and balance, you know the body can't function as it could, so I think you know there's a lot of lessons in that dream, and so have you drove like in waking life that way the the way in your I dream have. oh so I what have. Did that what would that feel like because that's part of your dream right
2: it 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 felt really it well that's when i realized that cuz i went and did that drive about a week after i had the dream and that's when i realized not only was it a, a meaningful dream but there were even there were more messages than just a horse i mean the fact that glenn was working on that street and driving back and forth on that very road the two weeks before he died also the fact that he was so tied to that truck when we were on the road. And before I met Brian, he worked in film television production and used to tell me that that was the famous road where all the car commercials were filmed. And many, many times he had worked there and would tell me about when he would work in production that it would be like 12, 16 hour, 18 hour days. So it was all very meaningful. But I haven't gone back, um, but I don't know that I need to. Mm. I think I it's that I
1: need to. and I think it's beautiful, too, how you shared so much detail about your life and his life because it gives meaning to the scenery and the setting of the dream. Sometimes when people tell their dreams, they really focus on the words that were spoken or how the, how the individual looked or the feeling they got. As you said, like the vividness and, and the love that they sort of woke up with. But the setting is, you're right, it's very important. I like how your dream reflected his life his whole life really and in in one instant, yeah it's very fascinating i'm always learning new things about these dreams and but the one thing is you know these settings can also be very important to pay attention to and talk about
2: oh that's interesting yeah that's interesting to know it's it was very meaningful to to me and um i had really been searching why 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 Mm. not that that made it better i feel it's he gave me some answers Yeah. that I
1: would have been seeking at the time. Okay. Yeah. And I, I like that. And a lot of people's dreams reflect what they're thinking about prior, like what they're trying to deal with. Like if, if you listen to the, one of the podcasts, I talk about my own loss and I would never got a chance to say goodbye to my father. And in the dream I had, I was able to say goodbye and that I loved him. Oh. So it's interesting how, who we are and what issues we're facing can be reflected in our dreams to help unlock some of those things so we can grieve um, and and go towards healing a little faster than we could otherwise. Have you had any dreams of Glenn since that one?
2: I've had two more. Um, they both were profound. The second was interesting. I was looking for a new place to live, and I sensed moved. And, in the dream, I saw the place I now am living and um but that wasn't really the but the meaningful part, so I was looking for the place to live and while I was in this house that I was looking at, someone came from the other side, meaning like the the angel you know the other side of where people deceased someone deceased came to me and said, "Glenn flirted with someone, flirted with some." lady on the other side well i got really jealous and i stood there like the tasmanian devil and had a look at him and i jumped up and down having a like a, like i was really upset and really mad and then all of a sudden this is really strange but i don't know how this happened at the same time glenn appeared and he was larger than the house in other words he imagined this giant covering up the whole house and he put his arms and hugged the house and at the same time he was the size of an regular human and he was in the room standing behind me putting his arms around me and the feeling that I got was such love and warmth I can't even describe it because I've never felt that in my waking state and he also looked younger, I would say, maybe age 25. And, of course, I didn't know him at that age because we met later in life, but i seen pictures. And this sounds silly, you guys, but he was glowing. And he was, like, all lit up. And he was so happy. And he told me that it made him so happy that I was jealous. Because he was always, he was always doing the chasing.
0: (laughs) Oh, that's interesting. So he
2: was so happy. Yes, he told me he was so happy that I was jealous. And he was kind of like laughing. He was like humored with the fact that I was having like a little temper tantrum. Wow.
0: So you were upset. Someone from the other side kind of told you, hey, guess what? Glenn's flirting you were upset and then he, and then he came and comforted you. Yes. Wow. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And then
2: also told me he was, it made me feel good that I was jealous and that he said, he just loves me and that he loves me forever. And he's waiting for me.
0: He might've set that up. I can see Glenn doing something like that. (laughs) From what I've learned about Glenn, Glenn's like, listen, let's, let's, let's play around over here. Interesting. And then he comforted And he was like, the size of the I like the I like that image because he was like the size of the house, and if I could, you know, obviously, briefly interpret your dream, he yeah. he is bigger than that. He's bigger than the the act of flirting. He's you know he's kind of you know he's kind of saying that that there's more meaning there.
2: Yes, yes, and the feeling that came with it, I I was actually experiencing physical feelings in my in my dream or maybe feelings aren't physical i i, I don't know
1: but you felt something is which beautiful. is interesting yeah.
2: i felt something very beautiful and warm and loving and explosive in a in a, a like a love bomb <laughs>
1: <laughs> wow i like that and what's the last dream
2: the last dream was recently And um, it was after I started the foundation, which has just been a few months now, I dreamt that I was in a big stadium and I knew that I was amongst millions of people. But at the same time, my point of reference was was as if I was in a stadium where there were only 100 people because you could see the stage right in front of you but yet I knew there were millions in that same stadium. And I couldn't make out anyone's face, but I could see people. We were all waiting for this show to begin. There was a lot of excitement. And then all of a sudden, uh, the curtain comes up and the lights go on in the stage, and there's a device that looked like a plexiglass portal spaceship sort of a thing went out into the stage and Glenn was inside of it and over the loudspeaker said ladies and gentlemen it's Glenn Greenberg and everyone went crazy and it was Glenn there and I of course I was thrilled because it's like that's Glenn that's Glenn and then quickly the scene switched and Glenn was sitting at a table doing a book signing and I was in line and he was going to sign my book and I was second in line and I was jumping up and down and I was so excited because Glenn Glenn it's me it's me it's me I got to you I got to you we're here I'm here I'm here but he ignored me and then I got this message this sounds so crazy but I got this instantaneous message that said Rachel I'm ignoring you because you've come too far. You went to this place in your dream. You went further than people are allowed to go. And I was nervous that you're dead. And your time isn't for a very long time. So it scared me. So I ignored you. But I think you're just dreaming. And then I woke up. Uh. (laughs) Yeah, so I don't really know what that means, but that's incredible. I'll never forget it.
1: Wow, that's uh, I've never heard anything like that. That's fascinating, but very powerful.
2: That's fascinating, yes.
1: Wow, so powerful. But it showed also he was caring because he he didn't know what to think. On... He
2: didn't know what he didn't know yeah. what to think. That's fascinating. And he wow. just said, "We can do this on this side. We can talk without talking." And that's where he told me, without lips moving, why he had it, had pretended that he didn't see me.
0: Did you struggle with that, like with, or do you struggle with that? Because, like, again, coming back to where you were an atheist, and then now, kind of maybe seeing a different perspective, you know, where you're like, you're—it's intimate for you. Does that yes. make it less well,
2: real, um, or more real or more real, Well, I don't struggle with it anymore because I'm no longer an atheist. I I can't be with these experiences. Well, I mean, I suppose I could. I mean, I still have doubts. But I've had so many mystical experiences since Glenn passed away, and the three dreams are just a fraction. And this all started on my quest to find out what happens to us when our physical body dies. And whether these experiences are true or not, they're, they've been true for me. So I just am to the point now where I just go with it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and although if this stuff had happened before Glenn died, I probably would be pretty freaked out and wouldn't know what to think about any of this stuff. And I would probably just dismiss it.
0: And... Yeah, yeah, you might, you would, you would have dismissed it probably, and said, "Oh, you know, yeah. it is what it is." I, I think it hits you at the, the the moment, and that's again, you know, you you said it, you know, you've seen other experiences, you've researched um, near death experiences, and a lot of this, and there's a lot of similarities. So, you know, just going with that, you can't dismiss things like this. You know, the, to me and to you, obviously. We're each in an individual person, so we see our own subject subjectivity to it. So it is subjective to a point, but at the end of the day, there's some correlations and real kind of uh, similarities between all that. And that's where we can come together and kind of share these things. But, you know, that's amazing. That's powerful. I re- thank you for that.
2: Oh, sure. Thank you. I mean, it's my pleasure. And I, I, I honestly feel that when grievers hear about these firsthand experiences by other grievers, it helps them in their grief journey it helps ease the pain whether they have the experience experience themselves or not i found that just even reading about someone's near-death experience or reading about someone's grief dream can ease a person's own grief whether they have a personal experience or not
1: yeah i i I see that a lot especially with people who are spiritual and you're talking about in a very spiritual way uh, there's also the other side of people get jealous and they want to know, like, how come I don't have one? And so <laughs> there's different things that can happen based on who the person is and where they are in their journey. But hopefully, you know, what you've shared can help some people to on their journey. And I want to also mention, too, the theme of this whole podcast so far is when Rachel opens her heart to the world, amazing things happen. And so the first thing you opened your heart to Glenn and it was the love of your life. Then you opened your heart to trying to find out what is life about and d- does the afterlife exist? And you got many signs to open your heart. And I think as you move forward in in your life, this theme was going to continue. So once again, just keep opening your heart to new things and to new possibilities. And, you know, your, your world will just keep getting better and the people you're going to help are going to come uh, in droves. So hopefully that speaks to you and hopefully people will uh come and check out connections of hope your foundation and can you just talk about that for a little while before we wrap up
2: sure sure well the foundation is connections of hope right now i'm on twitter Connections hope i didn't realize things would be moving so fast it's actually it's exploding people from all over all over the world are reaching out to me i mean there's just There's this entire underworld of millions of people grieving the loss of a loved one and they just want to be accepted. They just want to live a normal life and they just want their loved one back and their loved ones can't come back. So just being reassured to know that they can talk about their loved one, that it's okay to mention their loved one. It's okay to honor their loved one and even better, it's okay to seek out a connection with your loved one because that will help you on your path with grief and I, I may have mentioned it before and if I did I don't need to repeat myself but I found that there are two things that that help the most with grief. one is time and the second is having an ongoing relationship with your loved one who has passed whatever that means for you and I would like to bring kind of heaven and earth together. And not all woo woo, you know, sci, metaphysical, but more science based because my research came from this the this, this science aspect of it. However, it's led me into the spiritual. And I'm I would like to tie and I am tying the two together. It sounds similar to what you guys are doing in your podcast and your research. And I, I want to help others and they're they're out there. I mean, we're all going to We're all going to lose a loved one if we haven't already. And um, grief will will hit. And it's something, unfortunately, that doesn't go away. It can ease over time. It can start as a, a gigantic boulder you're carrying. And it can get smaller over time. I think right now I'm just carrying a purse. And someday it'll just be a little wallet. And it'll just be a thought It'll always be there, but you know, I've, I've heard that grief is the price we pay for love. If we didn't love so deeply, we wouldn't grieve. I just want to help others, to help them what has helped me. Because you know what, guys? There's really not that much out there, especially right. in the States. I found there's a lot of foundations in Canada and the UK, not so much in the States. There's a lot... From from um, dogmatic religion point of view, but even with that, after a few months, people just want you to get your life back to normal. Yeah, they don't want you to talk about your loved one. They just want you to pretend as if the person was never around, and that doesn't work for for the for the bereaved. Yeah, and, so and that's that's what I yeah. want to do, and you... that's what I am doing.
0: Yeah, you've you made some amazing points, Rachel. And uh, I totally agree with that. I mean the advice, uh, you know, even for the whole podcast on a whole, but even just this show, you know, patience, time, and trying to maintain some sort of relationship are some great takeaways um that you've given us for sure. The work you're doing is right there and, and important and and you know It's a new movement that we're trying to do that and get back to kind of sharing our stories, being storytellers, um, not being afraid and and you know embracing like you know if 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 you're not the one who has a loss, but be receptive to somebody else. You know if you know time is not a it's relative. You know a week, a month, a year since the loss. You know we we should still be able to feel free to kind of have these stories and connections and to share a dream. Share a dream, hey. Oh, I had this dream about you know my husband or wife or, or son or daughter yesterday you know and and to be open to that so thank you so much thank you for being uh, oh, a, par-
2: a part pleasure. of that. It's my pleasure. I, I'm I'm honored to to be a guest and and to share my story. Thank you guys. I love what you're doing. Uh, I just think
0: it's wonderful. Thank Excellent. you. Excellent. Uh, thank you so much. So once again, uh, Twitter at Connections Hope and Facebook at Connections of Hope. Uh, Please go out there and check it out. And uh, yeah, so uh, as far as our platform, you can uh, check out our platforms at griefdreams.ca for more information on the topic. If you have Facebook, you can join the Grief Dreams Facebook group. Uh, Share your story if you feel uh, like doing that and check us out on Instagram and Twitter at griefdreams. If you are interested in being a guest on our podcast, please email us your story and what you would like to share at griefdreamspodcast at gmail.com. So again, we like to end the program with love and gratitude from us to you. The
1: new beginning begins.